Novelist and genre shapeshifter Eden Lepucky is our guest on today's show. Expert writing tips include what to do when you realize you've spent four years writing two different novels that are actually the same novel. Spoiler alert, turning to Instagram poetry is probably not the answer. We talk about how having a baby is a great way to make you finish a project and the value of an editor who is really good at telling you you're brilliant. Also, Foo does virtual marriage counseling brought to you by the IT department at Bloomsday Literary. I just read your Modern Love essay again, and so I'm still crying again. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, I'm getting a divorce. Just kidding. Oh my god. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding. You hear that? You couldn't fix microphone problems, much less a marriage. (laughs) I know, right? Here at this New York Times, Eden is recusing herself from this podcast. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, I agree. I don't have any, you know, I don't have a strong opinion against yours. (laughs) But then I read Modern Love and I'm like, okay. This is the moment we take a deep breath in (laughs) and we read Sahada Badass. Right. Sorry, I fractured my ankle, so I haven't had as much social contact as I normally Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. Our guest today, Eden Lepucky, is the New York Times bestselling writer, astute essayist, and co-host of the podcast, Mom Rage. Really, if she told us that she's also a snake wrangler helping to establish the first settlements on the moon, we would not be surprised. There is a refreshing openness in documenting her writing and publishing journey from the triumphant yet anxious highs of selling her novel California debut to wide acclaim to watching one of her darlings, in her words, be murdered. She is just as vulnerably honest in her fiction. As a writer, she is the embodiment of fearlessness, and picking up one of her books is delicious, welcome, free fall. Even with a wild number of projects on her plate at any given time, Eden's craft is diligent, earnest, and devoted. But the pure wizardry of her worlds and characters does not equal predictability, as her stories unapologetically metamorphose on the page taking us from end-of-the-world L.A. to edge-of-the-seat possum encounters in her short stories to the tantalizing promise of time travel in her upcoming novel. Altogether, Eden putting pen to the page is like taking a paring knife to the heart of our fears as she beautifully renders in story what many of us are too scared to say aloud, while somehow managing to infuse it all with a dark wit that leaves us laughing out loud. We can't wait to hear how she does it. Eden, thank you so much for being on the show. Wow, I, that was an amazing introduction. Thank you. That was well, so nice. <laughs> thank you, you for- You can crib it for your next bio. I'm gonna have it put in like on a plaque. <laughs> <laughs> I love your I love your MFA grad um, bio essay, so. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Take parts of it. You seem to be a freaking literary shapeshifter. I mean, we go from woman number 17 to California to if you're not yet like me and 
I hear that none of those are like your current work in progress and it feels so freeing to me just to watch you get to do whatever the hell you want. I'm wondering how do you keep the people around you like once this machine has sort of sort of started out of the gate how do you keep the people around you okay with all of these shifts you know like your agents and editors <laughs> and those, those sorts of things. You I- know <laughs> I, it's a good question what's interesting is that I think that my work has a lot of similarities. So like ostensibly, yes, California, which takes place in 20, the 2050s and it's like a sort of post-apocalyptic story is really different from Woman Number 17, which has kind of sort of kind of a noirish bent about two mm-hmm. messed up women and their friendship and it's about motherhood. Um, but they're actually like structurally exactly the same book. <laughs> um, I think- I didn't realize that until I was done writing them, but you know, oh, they both funny. take place over like a six week period. Woman number 17 is two first person narratives. Right. Um, and California is third person, but it still goes back and forth between two characters. Sure. And I think structurally they sort of are twins. And I realized with both of those books, I kind of like make, I guess you could say I make literal something that I'm interested in thematically. So in California, you could say I was kind of obsessed with this idea of intimacy. So what would be more intimate than a married couple at the end of the world where there's nobody else to Mm -hmm. talk to but your spouse? (laughs) And then what happens to that intimacy when suddenly there are other people around? Right. And woman number 17, I think I was very much interested in identity and how identity is shaped by having a mother and being a mother. So I have like a person who's literally trying to become their mother and someone else trying to like fuse with her son so they have these weird overlaps but yeah they're really different books I you know one of my favorite writers is Jennifer Egan yeah and she really shifts from book to book like if you think about Manhattan Beach compared to um, Visit from the Spoon Squad compared to Look at Me there are definitely similarities in the style of writing but I feel like she has an obsession that she focuses on for each novel. So that's the kind of writer. I mean, I love her kind of writing. And then I also love like a Meg Woolitzer type who like, they're just reliably Meg Woolitzer. And you can just pick one up and know kind of what you're gonna get. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of wish I could do that, but I think I finish a book and then I don't wanna have anything to do with that style or that milieu. So you're like, I'm gonna go edit Instagram poetry now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna go do something totally different. Yeah, yeah. Um, from like a career perspective or like a marketing perspective, it has been challenging. California was a hit of not, I didn't have anything to do with that. Stephen Colbert got people to buy it and it became this other thing. So I was in a really good position to sell my next book. But when I brought it to Little Brown on a partial, they were all, they were kind of like, what is this? <laughs> They're like, this is nothing like the other book. And I, my agent really loved Woman Number 17. I think that's her favorite thing I've written. And she was like, this is what she's like, born to write. She had like some agent <laughs> talk, you know? And she asked them like, did you expect some kind of sequel? And they were like, no, 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 no. And they didn't, they didn't really say what they wanted, but it wasn't that. And now I have this new book I'm writing, which my publisher has seen and they haven't bought it yet, but they were also like, oh, this is not what we expected. <laughs> And someone there had called me uncategorizable. Yeah. 
I take as a compliment. What but a compliment. When you're like trying to wild women are not categorizable. Or yeah, something. like right? Don't you think that signi- I would like to tell myself that signifies less like a lack of focus and more like just an interesting brain or yeah. you know. Yeah. But you know, so I think it can be hard when people are thinking of kind of a narrow marketing thing. The new book is totally different structurally after I realized the first two were so similar. So I really wanted to try to write something that covered a lot of time, like years and years of time. Right. So it starts in 1981 and I think it ends in, I'm not sure, I think 2012 it ends. So it covers a lot of time and there's a, I was really interested in like distilling time and doing a lot of like fun novelistic summary. Um, But in other ways, it has a lot of similarities to California. I think just in like, a general sense of world building is has some echoes to that so yeah we'll see <laughs> we'll see what happens to me after this we have a lot of new writers who listen to the show can you maybe pause a second and say what a partial is and just a part of that sort of that part of your publishing sort of journey yes so a partial means a partially written manuscript and it's actually pretty common to sell a partial for nonfiction. I know a lot of people who, with their agents, work on like a description of the work and a detailed summary of the table of contents and the chapters that will be covered and then like one or two sample chapters or whatever. And the idea is you sell that book and then you get the money and then you can pay for to do the research and all the field work and all that stuff. Novels, it's really not very common to sell something half written. So California, I sold when it was totally done. And then I had half of a woman number 17. And because California was successful, my agent was like, well, we might as well try to sell it now. (laughs) Strike while the iron's hot. (laughs) So that's what we did. Ultimately did sell the partial, but to a different publisher who was, you know, more excited about this direction that I was taking. And then I tried to do it again. (laughs) This time I tried to sell a partial, but you know, woman number 17 did not sell as well as California, which I didn't really expect it to, honestly. So they were like, let's wait till you have the whole thing, then bring it back to us. <laughs> uh, which honestly, it hurt. What's funny is like, I had to have like, kind of like a sobering moment for myself. Where I was like, well, why did I want to sell the partial? And the answer was just like, I wanted it for my ego. You know, I wanted someone to be like, we love it already. You only have a hundred pages, but it's amazing. <laughs> so when, because I, I wasn't struggling, like I didn't need the money right then. I was like, well, I have enough money to finish it. I have money coming in still, so I can just go off into my cave and write it. But I definitely did want an editor kind of holding my hand and telling me that I was brilliant. So, <laughs> right. So, yeah. But normally when you sell novels, you have to finish the whole thing. And then occasionally, I've never done this, people sell, like they have, they get a deal for just that book or they get something like a two book deal, which would be like, we're going to buy this book and your next book based on a description of that book. Sometimes I don't think you even need to have a description of the next book, but I'm not there yet. So next, next time, this is going to be it. Next time. Although I'm kind of torn, like. I guess there's drawback, there's benefits and drawbacks. The benefits being, well, you know your next book is gonna be published, right? Sure. So that feels good. You feel like your publisher is interested in you, but like drawbacks are, what if your editor leaves? So you suddenly have a new editor or what if you write the second book and they're like, actually, this isn't the book we want. What if the first book does really well? And if you held out, you could have gotten a better deal for the next book. I don't know, there's all these like what ifs 
plus but the timeline is usually like really faster condensed. yeah yeah and you have to be okay with having a blank page and being like okay gotta produce something <laughs> were there some crutches that you used to kind of help you get through that sort of like the mental acrobatics it takes to navigate all of that while you're also you know under the gun to produce art you mean for finishing woman number 17 yeah yeah you know because i already i had i think i had like 120 ish pages like and i had those pages i had like at least 75 pages before california even came out mm-hmm. um so it already very much felt like this is the book it's going to be like no matter what happens with my first book whether it's a bomb whether it's a hit whether it's kind of what most books are like you know neither of those things Right. You know, it already kind of was itself. And so once I sold it, I just had to, I had a whole year to finish it. So it wasn't like, got to finish this in three months. Um, so that was about the time frame that I would have needed anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and I was pregnant as well. So that was kind of weirdly useful. Like, I was like, <laughs> oh, I've got to finish this book. This baby's going to come. <laughs> or else the baby's got to finish the book. <laughs> yeah, right. It's now or never. <laughs> or at least till after the breastfeeding is over or, yeah, yeah the yeah. first year. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Oh, jeez. Well, can we hear um, a piece of your writing? So I was just going to read this super short section from the second chapter of Woman Number 17. Oh, great. Okay. This is just chapter two, and it's narrated by this character named Lady. She has two kids, a son who's two and a half, whose dad, she's just recently kicked out of her Hollywood Hills mansion. And then she has a second son, her first child, who is 18. His name is Seth. And he doesn't speak and he never has. And she's not in touch with his father. I wasn't born with the name Lady. My birth certificate reads Pearl. And I was called that for the first year of my life until one evening as my mother was getting ready for a party I stepped into her shoes. They were so big, the heels so high that I couldn't lift my feet. I had to ski across the room to her. Look, mommy, I said. My mother glanced up from her jewelry box or her address book or her vodka soda and said, what a lady. Like that, I had a new name. Like that, I became someone else. It would be a sweet little story if my mother weren't so damaged. She didn't talk to anyone in her family, wouldn't say why. And she rarely let me see my dad until it was too late and he was in the hospital with the stroke that would kill him. For as long as I could remember, it had always been just my mother and me, marooned on our pathetic female island. If she forgot to pick me up from school, which was more often than I want to admit, I'd have to walk the three miles home. Once I took the bus, my mother was appalled. We do not take public transportation, she cried. In the eighth grade, I hitched a ride from a woman who said I looked like an orphan, shivering like I was, my hair a mess. There's something to that, I told her. When I was a girl, my mother would sing me, happy birthday at night is a lullaby. If that sounds cute, it wasn't. Even now, I equate the song with darkness, with the long toss and turn to dawn. And on my birthday, I still ask for something else. Sing me Elton John or whatever, I'll say, because I don't know his songs, not really. Seth's father, Marco, once refused me this request, and I wouldn't blow out the candles. They burned down to little eraser tops, the wax pooling into the white frosting until Marco intercepted, pulling the candles out in a mad rush, extinguishing the flames between his fingers. 
I wish I could say that was our last birthday together, but then I got pregnant with Seth, so we dragged things out for another year or so. Did you know that if you bite on a real pearl, it should feel gritty against your teeth? I learned that when I was in my 20s, and ever since I've wished for my old name back. But I'm lady now, for better or for worse, and people love the name, or they say they do. And I'll stop there. Awesome. Can I say you have a great reading voice, Ian? Thank you. Are there any audio books that you have published also? <laughs> I have to, I, mo both my novels are on audio, but they hired actors to do them. Oh, they, wow. they missed out on they your voice. They missed them both. Although, <laughs> I feel like it would be super intense to read your own audiobook. It takes like hours because you have to like, it does. you mess up, then they have to like re-record and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. It I could also be cool. Who did I hear? Oh, uh, John Grisham was one time lamenting the process of reading his own <laughs> audio books, but I don't feel yeah. I don't feel very sad for John Grisham. I think he has a pretty good. <laughs> I think he's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I think he survived that particular obstacle. No, he's, get, he's getting by. Yeah. <laughs> John Grisham getting by. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. He doesn't even. Yeah, he's just like I've got this idea, guys. <laughs> Yeah, nice accent. No, it's terrible. That's awful. Fuse is worse, though. Oh, no. I've worked, worked long on my John Grissom accent. Oh, my God. Terrible, terrible, terrible. I wanted to write some, like, a really lit, crit, heavy question about the female gaze in woman number 17. But, I, I mean, like, I think at the end of the day, I'm the thing that gets me the most about this is so much space here is devoted to the um, mother-daughter relationship and how complex it is and how um, you so confidently believe that it's worth investigating. I want, I guess my question is, when did you know that relationship was going to sustain the whole novel? Did you sit down mm. to the table with that? No, you know what's funny is I feel like with every book, I don't really know what it's about. You know, when I teach a, like when I teach a workshop, I always talk about that we, I have the, not the writer, but the readers of the manuscript talk about a work's deeper subject, you know, not what happens, but what is it about? Because mm -hmm. I feel like as the writer, writing the book is a process of understanding what, what are you trying to say? What is your work really about? So I, I mean, I guess I didn't set out being like, well, here's going to be, here's my motherhood book. <laughs> my agent once was like, complicated mother, that's your brand. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh shit. Sure. <laughs> um, Thank God for that. Because yeah, there's, right. it, there's never enough. <laughs> right? But I think, you know, when I started writing this book, it was before, you know, I feel like there's a lot of great motherhood books now. Um, and it's like a subgenre, mom lit. But I didn't really think of that when I was working and I didn't think I was joining that genre. I did know that I wanted to write about, um, I mean, Lady came first and I was really interested in writing about somebody who had a child who wasn't what she expected mm -hmm. and what that would be like. And I, I, I have said this in other interviews and I think I said it even in the acknowledgements, but I had read Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon which I think is now also a documentary, but it's a great nonfiction book about people who parent children different from them. So there's like 
parents of autistic kids and parents of deaf children, women who were raped and have babies mm-hmm. as a product mm-hmm. of those rapes and how they, the parents often can't really ever really know their kid in a way and can't really join in the community of that child. You know, hearing impaired kids often are a part of this really vibrant community and the parents can hear. And so that kind of keeps them outside of that. I just thought it was so fascinating. And so many parents in that book are like, goddamn heroes. They just advocate for their children mm-hmm. in these really beautiful moving ways. And of course, as a fiction writer, I was like, well, I want to know about someone who doesn't do that. <laughs> who just, in some way is just not good at it. And for whatever personal reasons, whatever happened to this mother in her past, can't accept her child. So my son, who actually is, it's interestingly, he's now what they call, I guess, twice exceptional. I don't know if people know what that means. I had, we finally had him assessed because we were like, what's going on with you? He's almost eight, but he tested like really intensely gifted. And I don't mean to sound like an insufferable parent. It's like, my child's so smart. (laughs) (laughs) He's super gifted, but he like, for instance, can't, he eats paper at school. Okay. Like he has, and it's what they call, always get the term right. Uh, I want to call it asymmetrical development, but that's not the right word. Um, It's when you develop one part of yourself really well, like your super brain, but then you have trouble like holding a spoon or like socially, you're just a little bit mm-hmm. off. Uh-huh. So ultimately I am parenting a child who is a little bit different. When I started thinking about this book, he was only like 12 months old and I was like, he's not gonna talk. Like how come he's not talking was my first child. And oh my gosh. Wow. I started to think about like, well, what if he never spoke? Like what if he, just like, what if he couldn't? And I just started to think about like, what kind of parent would I be if I had a child like that. As, as and, such a talker, as such a communicator. Yeah, and yeah. what would that, and how would I get him services? And then I just was like, well, what if you're a single parent? And, you know, right. you had, uh, and then I, I don't I don't know from there, I just started spinning out in that way that we as fiction writers do. We're like, okay, well, her, the, the baby daddy left and she doesn't have a relationship with her mother and she has all this rage about these two things. And her son is really her only opportunity for intimacy. And I wanted to write someone who actually truly loved her child. It actually bothers me when people are just like, she's a terrible mother, because I do think she made bad choices in the book. I do think that. But I also think her love is real. And that even if it's all damaged in all these ways, I do believe that she's trying her best. I was getting, I was having those same feelings reading some of the critiques on your behalf, that 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 is not how I felt at all about their relationship that she just seemed like she was doing the best she freaking could with the tools that she had you know was... yeah and she granted doesn't have the best tools <laughs> no um yeah. it's what I wanted to look at I didn't want to write someone who was like a paragon of just terrific perfect mothering yeah and the first thing people. I did, yeah they don't, <laughs> exist, really. they don't exist um but of course my son did speak and he's very, I mean, that's the thing. What's, what's the great irony is that his verbal abilities, like he has like 12th grade reading comprehension level and like a vocab of like a college student. And I create, so I basically created this monster. Holy um, crap. So he has all the things that I took away from Seth in some ways. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. But yeah, and so then when I first started writing the book, I was just like, I'll just put her in a scene. I'm gonna give her a babysitter. (laughs) I don't know, I had no plan. 
And then S walked in and she was so interesting and weird. I was like, what's her story? And I don't really know where she came from, but suddenly I had all these mother, daughter, mother and child relationships to balance out. But I didn't really think, I try not to think too hard about what it is I'm trying to say, because I feel like that gets in the way from the complexity of just putting humans in a room and seeing what they do. I do feel like there's kind of a mystical thing that happens where like themes kind of emerge and echoes in the text just are just there for you to gather, I guess. After. And so they, I, yeah. And I, so I didn't intend for some things and then they just happened. And I don't, I don't know. I don't really take credit for them. If you put a bunny in a closet, interesting things are going to happen, right? <laughs> exactly. And like, I, what's interesting is I have all this mirroring in the book. Yes. You know, like yeah. Changing their names and stuff. And then I had the Maltese. The Maltese is only there because I have a Maltese. <laughs> and I tried to put a Maltese in California. My editor was like, this is kind of a rich person's dog. <laughs> and it seems weird that she had a Maltese. And I was like, my Maltese is a rescue. Thank you very much. But okay. So I edited out the Maltese in California. It was just like a one-off line about it. <laughs> rescue Maltese. So I, I know. So I was like, I'll just cut it out. I don't need a Maltese. But I was like, I'm definitely putting Maltese in the next book because it is a rich person. So she has a Maltese. But then I realized I had this Maltese and this rabbit who are also sort of weird mirrors of each other. Yes. Yes. So it was just kind of, I didn't intend for this to happen, but it just sort of did, which I love. That's kind of one of my favorite things about writing. That is maybe the best thing about writing. <laughs> That's why we do it. Yeah. Totally. Have you, um, have you ever written a personal essay about the, your son and, and Seth and sort of what you took away from Seth and that your son sort of Oh, I'm going to read that essay. Not, no, I haven't. You know, when I was doing, trying to write some essays, you know, the like exposure essay book tour that everyone seems to be doing where it's like, I have a book coming out. Here are 12 personal essays. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Who does that? Everybody does it. Watch. Somebody has a new book coming out. They're like, I wrote a personal essay about my time in Rehoboth or whatever. Yeah. But I wrote this piece about my son going to occupational therapy. Mm-hmm. And I, cause he went to occupational therapy in preschool and that was how old he, he was in preschool when the book came out. And, or maybe he was in kindergarten, either way. He, but he had, at that point he was just going cause he had some gross motor skill issues. And the essay was kind of about like the preschool teachers telling me that maybe he needed to go and how I was kind of in denial and then it kind of talked about the things he had learned in occupational therapy. And it had this sort of false resolution. It didn't really work as an essay and I couldn't figure it out. And I thought was thinking about it recently because, you know, the end of that essay ends with him like remarking on the beautiful California light. <laughs> and it's like this moment of like connection with him and like me accepting him. It's like me accepting him for who he is, but it doesn't, it, it was an unearned ending as they say. <laughs> and I realized now it was because it was written as if like, oh, he went to occupational therapy for a year and then everything's great, which was not really how it was and not how really it ever is as a parent. Like no. there's no silver bullet for anything. Like even if your child is having like age appropriate tantrums, they do ultimately fade, but they're replaced with something else that is puzzling. Awful. 
that you, yeah, that you're just like, I don't know what the right thing to do here is. And you're like a choose your own adventure way to respond to something. And you're like, one way is the wrong way or both ways are probably wrong. <laughs> They're all going to leave you at the bottom of a cliff. Either yeah. way. <laughs> so I think my, I, I do think that's sort of where the podcast has come in, where I do feel like it's kind of this living document of my experiences as a parent, because I don't, I, at this point, I don't feel like I don't know what the essay is that could feel, could like let that open-endedness come in, you know? Yeah, yeah. You just totally explained something really important that I've been trying to figure out about personal essays and fiction and how, yeah, in fiction you can have that open-endedness and personal essays are supposed to kind of end on- Teach you something. However, however yeah. temporary, you know? Yeah. Um, of like, this is what I learned. That's the problem with parenting, right? It's like there, I mean, I've said this before that you don't, there aren't any progress reports. You know, you don't get a report card every <laughs> yeah. six weeks that says like, congratulations, your kid's not going to be a total fuck up when this is all over. Yeah. You know, like there's. You just never know. <laughs> and so, yeah. So writing a personal essay in the middle of that does seem like tempting the fates. Yeah. It's it just felt official than fiction, you know, which is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel like. Also, because so many essays are online and they're about my children and I actually am fine with writing about my kids and I feel like that's my life as well as theirs, mm -hmm. there is something like, and it's a neat bow about his personal learning issues. It's like, well, I don't know if that really needs to be out there. Yeah. I have to find later. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I'll probably try again. When I'm on my next personal essay tour, <laughs> you'll see essays about parenting out there, I'm sure. It's true. I, I recently met with freelance editor about my novel and she said, you know, the, the bad thing is that there are no review outlets anymore, very few. The good thing is that you have to write a whole bunch of personal essays, but so it's a ton of work and a ton of exposure, <laughs> but you get to control the narrative, you know? Yeah, that's true. And I have read, I have read a couple books based on other, on personal essays. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's when I first, when I read Your Modern Love, I was like, okay, I'm going to read everything I can by her. Oh, yeah. but I mean, <laughs> it works. You know? If you're not, if you're not, like, if you just want to write novels and you don't want to write personal essays, it's kind of like, well, shit out of luck. Totally. totally. <laughs> that's why I'm trying to learn how to do it. It's like, and that's the thing. We're not really taught how to do that in our MFAs. Or I yeah. wasn't. I don't know. No, I definitely, no, I had no, no, definitely not. I was so good that they were like, by the way, you need to learn how to write this genre, which is like, <laughs> also, and also yeah. incredibly important. <laughs> no, but it's a good idea for the class that they need to offer. I know, I know. We had Jessica Wilbanks on a couple of weeks ago and she, she wrote a nonfiction memoir. So she's more, she's, she's better at it naturally, probably because that was, that's, you know, her genre, but yeah. she does teach them through Catapult and I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. I should probably take her class. Yeah, there you go. I would love to sign up for her book as well. We could just, all three of us could show up and be like, hi, Jessica. We're here to take her. We need some help. I think you have figured it out. I think you've cracked it. Like, it really helps me to read yours because I'm like, okay, it's not like it has to be tied up with a bow, but there's a little moment of, I don't know, a temporary reprieve or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I thought, well, if I was doing, you know, if I was taking or teaching a personal essay class, writing class, then I would want to put, if you're not yet like me on it, because from reading that, I felt like, okay, 
I'm learn. This is closer to what I normally do, but I can. There's some transient lessons that I can take for the personal essay. Obviously, this is my obsession, right? So I'm like anything, like a can of soup. I'm like, this is a personal essay. <laughs> <laughs> a very tenuous thing, but also because I just love it so much. So I would want to put it on any syllabus that I was teaching. Oh, thank you. It's not at all autobiographical, so that's really funny. <laughs> of, course not. of course not. And that's, I don't know why. I'm like, even though it's completely not autobiographical and completely fictional, there are lessons of the personal essay here that I can take with me on my Interesting. Journey. Love it. Cannot, I cannot tell you what, but I will. <laughs> if you have to teach it, you better figure it out. <laughs> heard the origin story for Mom Rage, your amazing, raw, hilarious, honest podcast about parenting and writing and your sort of relationship to your co-host, Amelia. Mom Rage, we started about a year ago, last May. Amelia and I, she has two kids, as do I, although I'm pregnant with another child now. Um, my last child, don't worry. <laughs> and, but our, her younger son and my younger daughter are the same age. They're like four weeks apart. And we both had Mondays off with our kids. So when I first moved back to LA, we just started hanging out every Monday. We'd like meet up at the park or like the gardens and our kids would play. And we just got into these really long conversations that just were really refreshing. They were like deeper than a lot of the conversations I'd had with my other mom friends, you know, about all kinds of things like school choice or like how our parents affected our own parenting, you know, all these like heady questions. Mm -hmm. And then one day I was like, I want to do a podcast with Amelia. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but I was like so naive about like what that would require. Yeah. I just like, it's a, a minor time commitment. Ha ha. You can't see it, but producer Fu is nodding his head so hard. Yeah. That I think it's it's so much time. Fall off his um, clueless. <laughs> So clueless, but, and I also knew Amelia, like Amelia had done. So Amelia is, a, her name is Amelia Morris and she has a blog called Bon Appetemt, which is like a cooking blog. And she had a little like TV show with it, like a web series that was about she, her and her older son cooking in the kitchen. And she has a memoir based on that blog, but she's also a fiction writer. She went, she got her MFA in fiction writing actually. So she, I knew she was, she had an audience and that she also, I also knew practically speaking that she had some of the technical know-how that I don't have, or at least she's the kind of person who can learn that sort of stuff. Like I was pretty <laughs> like aware of myself as someone who could not learn that stuff. So I just was like, Amelia, I want to do this podcast. It's called Mom Rage. Do you want to do it? And at first she was like, I don't know. I don't really like that name. Like I don't want the word mom in it. It's so dorky. And I, but then the name grew on her. She said that she could hear herself saying, welcome back to mom rage. <laughs> so, and then we just kind of started it. Like we didn't really, we bought a microphone. I mean, the joke of, we have no producer, so it's just us. But the joke is that the first six episodes, the audio is especially bad. And we hired this guy, we paid this guy $50, who was like a friend of her husband's or a coworker or something to come and like, figure out our audio and it turned out that the microphone was not turned on <laughs> it was like not turned on in the program you know like it was right. turned on but then you have to like click a button or whatever <laughs> 
So that was just like, Jesus, guys, come on. But so it's always been like this sort of scrappy thing that we've done. But from the beginning, you know, our focus was like, let's do, let's have these kind of conversations that we've been having, just the two of us, but put them, record them. And, you know, half the show will be us talking about our lives and topics, all kinds of things. And then the second half will be an interview. Um, so we've tried to interview both like kind of like healthcare professional kind of people. Like we've had a number of midwives on an OB who does breach, which was really fascinating. We have had like a speech therapist. We've had like a pelvic floor expert. And then we've also had just kind of everyday people. We've had an anonymous guest who talked about her abortion. We've had another anonymous guest talk about her, like her son's behavioral issues and being like singled out at a public school for them. A lot of writers and just kind of like, we just really want to get at this messy life of parenting and like celebrate it and also like recognize how hard it can be. And, you know, I feel like all of my work, I just want to be as honest as possible. And it's been because I writing is so solitary, you guys maybe feel this way too, but writing is so solitary and it takes a long time for anyone to get to see it. So the podcast is giving me an outlet that like writing for the millions used to, which I just don't have time to do anymore, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, I get to put something out into the world weekly, get feedback, feel like, hey, I'm, I'm alive, I exist. Scrap. <laughs> uh, and also being like, I'm a pretty extroverted person. So I actually really love doing the interviews and meeting people and having these, get to have these conversations. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's really, really great. I do have a small bone to pick with you about it, though. Oh, let's hear it. Uh-oh, what is it? <laughs> May 20th episode, you opened by singing Ladies First, and then it was in my head for... Like... It's forever. Do you know who sings it? I can't even... I still can't find it. Oh, no! Are you it's serious? Like, I think... Is it Sisters with Voices or something? Remember SWV? Because it's not <laughs> Queen Latifah. I couldn't find it on Spotify. It must be called something else. Oh my God. I don't know what it's called, but it's been in my head ever since then. And it's your it's such a good song. Damn like, do you fault. know any of the other words? <laughs> no, hell no. Hell no. And it made, I, 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 I have to say a small caveat because my middle child sang for the last year and a half. Beyonce is all the single ladies, except she says, oh, I, she says, I'm a scenta lady, which is like a mashup <laughs> of scintillating and lady. Which I think oh my God. Beyonce would approve of. But if you have to, you yeah, know, I hear it for a year and a half. It's pretty yeah, awful. Over it. But I don't yeah. think I want it replaced with ladies first. Yeah, it's not a good one. You'll only have songs with lady in the title. And yeah. therefore, you will always be thinking of woman number 17. That's right. Forever. It was the your brand. That was Eden's like, evil you know, world plan. Foundation. Right. That's Nature. true. How did you know? How did you figure it out? Shit. I okay. also just figured out what my personal essay ramble was all about with um, your novella, which is that she's speaking to her baby, her unborn baby. And like uh, that has been uh, done before. Yeah. You do it very well. I really like it. I definitely spoke to my child in utero a lot. And I think that's, I'm like, oh, that's that's how you imagine audience for personal essays. You have oh, interesting. And because they're kind of like babies in the womb where they're not really there, but they're, yeah, there, but they're there. Right. Yeah. No, I like that. No, that makes sense. <laughs> Jessica, okay. you need to go TM that because that's a great course right there. It is. It is. Just talk to your, 
audience and personal essays like they're your in utero babies. They're babies. <laughs> so I want to hear about the work in progress, this editing that you're doing of your amazing Instagram account, Mothers Before, which also came out of Women Number Seventeen. Yeah. So I have so I have this. Inst- I started this Instagram called Mothers Before as a. It was like a publicity stunt. <laughs> It was like, wouldn't this be a great way to get people to buy my novel, which I don't think it <laughs> any copies of my book. But in Woman Number 17, the other character, S, she's doing this performance project where she's dressing as her, the 23-year-old version of her own mother. So she starts, she's doing this whole like immersive experience. But midway through the book, she starts collecting photos of other people's mothers before they became mothers. So I thought, oh, this would be a really neat Instagram and make it specifically for women and, you know, some gender non-conforming folks if they want to hang out too. And so I got pictures for my friends to start and I started the Instagram and then people started submitting pictures and they're just so cool. (laughs) I really had no idea it would be such a neat project, but everyone's pictures, like I haven't ever really gotten a bad picture. Like maybe it's blurry or someone's thumb is in the way or something, but. (laughs) They're all badasses. Yeah, they're just really yeah. interesting images of these young women. And then to hear in the captions about the women and their lives or about the daughter's relationship to the mother, I just, it's always interesting and kind of like, there's just so much to dive in to. And then through a series of events, like I was asked to write a little piece about it for the New York Times, so I did that. That weirdly went viral because it was like the week, the same week that James Comey got fired. So I feel like it was the only... It was like the one non-political article and people just <laughs> so for that. People shared it like crazy. It was amazing. Um, and then that led to my agent being like, well, we should use, this would be a really cool book. And I agreed. I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't like a cheesy book. <laughs> and we, we made, this is where, you know, we made the proposal with pictures from the Instagram you know, pretending as if that was the book. And then I wrote like a little letter about it. And so it's going to be published by Abrams next year. And I'm so excited about it. The, um, it's mostly, it's it's kind of a mix. There's a few people who were on the Instagram in the past, either the picture that was already online or they have a second picture that they sent me. And then otherwise mostly writers writing anywhere from like a paragraph to like two pages about the photo or their mothers and just the photos alone are stunning of course just from different eras and different countries and some of them are goofy there's a lot of beautiful very powerful images and then people i didn't really give people that much direction in terms of what they could write about so people really took it in all these different ways so i feel like it really captures kind of all the various ways you might feel about your mom (laughs) like some people are not so keen on their moms and other people are like, they call their mom every day, but whatever people have to say, it feels very real. And yeah, it's going to be really pretty too. Like it's the design is looking really elegant. I'll say. That's really exciting. Is that spring? Did you say spring? Yeah. It's like a mother. It's going to be like a mother. I haven't, they haven't given it a date yet, but I think it's a mother's day That's great. around mother's day title. Yeah. Um, and it's a totally different animal than ever. Like the order of things is, I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. 
getting the images, they have to put them in Dropbox. The art department has to look at them. They have to be a certain resolution. The, it are, the book's already been copy, getting copied in now, but then after that, you do the order of the images. Like it just is just very different from making a novel because they have to get everything together and have like a sample copy printed a long time in advance to make sure that all the images look right, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's an interesting learning process. And I have like spreadsheets to make sure everybody turns in every, you know, it's not fun in some way. <laughs> but then again, I don't have to do any of the writing. So that's cool. <laughs> there, there are days when like Fu and I go into the office and are, are working on whatever spinning plate is going on in our publishing world. And I really just want someone to give me a spreadsheet and check shit off, you know? So part yeah. of that sounds really appealing to me. Like someone give me a task that's like done when it's done and I can just yeah. check Yeah, but it it's hard when you have, when you're, the thing is you're waiting on other people for them. That's what's so hard. Like yeah. I'm so neurotic yeah. and I would, that I, but that needs like, I have 70 contributors. So it's like, okay, I have, I have this form from 68 of them. And it's like, <laughs> you know, then I can't. I can't finish the spreadsheet. So it gets, it gets hard that way, but it's also like, yes, it's either done or it's not. It's, this, it's not like this amorphous essay that I'm writing. Or novel, <laughs> yes, you know? Yeah. Okay. So these are, these are speedy answers to quick questions to give our listeners a little bit more about your bio. So I want to know what you're digging these days, either, you know, some new podcast, music, book, animal, vegetable, mineral. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> I just finished reading Good Talk by Mira Jacob. Oh, this book? Her, I've heard. Yeah, it's on my list. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a graphic, I think it's called a graphic memoir in conversations. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's interesting. She, Mira Jacob is a novelist. She has one novel. And these are, she's drawn basically pictures of the people in her lives. And then they're kind of collaged against usually flat, like photographs of a setting. And then it's just like dialogue pretty much between, and it starts with her son. She's Indian. She's was born in New Mexico. Her parents immigrated from India and her husband is a Jew, white Jewish American guy. And so she has this mixed race child and it starts with like questions about like Michael Jackson's race and like, what is he? And like, are we black? Are we brown? What are we? And then it, it follows the election and ending in 2016. But then there's kind of memoir about her upbringing in New Mexico and like some microaggressions um, around publishing her first novel. It's very funny. Um, and then there are these parts that were just like, were totally heartbreaking. That it's just a terrific book about kind of parenting and complicated conversations that you have with like your spouse and your child and your in-laws and your parents. Let's see. We don't read enough about New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> According to, I think she says that their family was the third Indian family to come to New Mexico. Oh my gosh. And then there's like an asterisk and then it says, according to the first two families. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny. Oh my gosh, I'm buying that. That sounds great. Let's see. My husband is watching Chernobyl. Oh, yeah. Like, That's so good. I was added, I, it's so good, but I was out of town, so I missed the first two episodes. So I'm really into it, but I'm kind of half watching it because I missed the beginning. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> it's like I keep, I'm doing, he, he's watched, this is not a thing that I'm obsessed with, obviously, but 
he's watching it. So I'm doing something else. And then I'm like, I'm about to take my bath, but then I'll get like sucked into like a particular scene. And then I kind of have to leave because it's just too intense. And I also don't exactly know who's who. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to start that from the beginning. I think I could watch Jared Harris, like just peel an orange in scene and be yeah, completely he's so satisfied. Good. He's so good. He's so good. And I, um, I recently saw this movie. It's not that new, so I kind of feel dumb. But it's it's a document. It was actually nominated for the Academy Award. It's called Minding the Gap. It's a documentary. Have you guys heard of this? Movie? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about uh, these kids in um, Rockford, Illinois, and it, one of the filmmaker. He it's like his group of friends, and it basically focuses on him and two of his other friends. Um, and he has all this footage from like their whole like from puberty into their like until they're like 19 or 20, I think, where it ends. Um, and they're into skateboarding. And it's sort of about, it's, it ends up being, I think, ultimately about masculinity and like what it means to be a, a young man in America at this time, particularly in a place that's like economically depressed without a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm. But what I really loved about it was that you di I didn't really know what it wanted to be about. Like I was just kind of watching it. It was beautiful. It was like setting it was at times funny you know sometimes you're like like when I started it my husband was like oh let's watch this about skateboarding and it was <laughs> about skateboarding although there's a lot of skateboarding footage in the movie like um, Friday Night Lights is about football but yeah exactly exactly and it I feel like it has an intimacy that a lot like I'm just tired of documentaries now I feel like every documentary is the same like has the drone footage it's like really slick looking but this doesn't have that same quality. Like it's so, because the the filmmaker is one of the subjects and these are his best friends. So it's very raw. Um, like an iPhone or something? I think he had a, a real camera or he had like a Go, I don't even, I'm going to say a GoPro. Like I know what that is, but you know, like a skateboarding <laughs> camera. He ultimately became like a real filmmaker and made it into a film. So there's kind of like earlier footage from when they were boys and then like in the present of the narrative. Oh, he's interviewing like he interviews his mom his brother the 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 mother of one of the kids child and so like they have like a tumultuous relationship but yeah i just found it so moving and i can't stop think i saw this like a few weeks ago and i still think about it and i don't know that many people who've seen it even though it was nominated for a documentary oscar i remember it, seeing it in yeah. the categories yeah but i haven't i Totally. I was like, yeah. oh, that everyone was really just good. so pissed about the Mr. Rogers movie not getting nominated that they just ignored what did get nominated. <laughs> what actually happened? <laughs> what we're just like thinking about workshop lately, and you know the the joys and tribulations of them. So, your worst workshop comment that you've ever received that still <laughs> you know, a really good one. <laughs> Kate has a good one. What did yeah. you get? We've relived it on this show several times, but I we had a novel workshop where a guy whose novel, incidentally, was about football and Friday night love making sessions on the field. Um, he told oh my me God. my novel um, was wildly ambitious, but that that was just a euphemism for unwieldy and uninteresting. <laughs> like, wow. Is, like, just That's like so this mean. Yeah, it was, you know, overtly mean and yeah, and yeah. Anyway, it's one that sticks yeah. with you, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm glad I have a microphone and I get to talk about it on here. It makes yeah, me feel better. You live it over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Exactly. Because asshole. <laughs> uh, 
Fuck you know, the you. only one that, this, yeah, dude, you're a jerk. Um, I have like, um, like kind of like nameless feelings <laughs> from certain workshops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By and large, I didn't have like the cliched, especially for Iowa. Like, I don't feel like we were super poisonous to each other. One time, a guy said to me, "A thesaurus is like a lightsaber, and it should be used carefully." As <laughs> 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 but suggesting because I think I used the word avuncular. This is that was a, the word I used was avuncular, which I did not use the thesaurus for. So that made me even more mad, but he was kind of being, jo- he was like joking about it. So I didn't really have any like real rage toward him about it, but I still sometimes think about that. Um, Metaphors are like a scalpel that should be used carefully. Yes, it's real, it's a sharp object. Right. So, but I, that's one that sticks out to me, but I, did, I don't like hold it against him. He was, you know, cause I was like, I didn't use a thesaurus, I swear. I, Usually I use my like, computer. It's kind of like a normal word. It's not that crazy. Yeah. And I, what's funny, I feel like most people use a thesaurus. Like when I use my computer thesaurus, like I have a real thesaurus I like to gauge through, but I use my computer thesaurus for like very common words. Yeah. Or like how many times am I going to say like beyond or whatever? I need to use it, you know, that kind of word. And I don't change it for like a 10 cent word, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Right. How many times am I going to say even though? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. Qualify, qualify, qualify. Who's your dream podcast guest and what would you ask them? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, well, Amelia and I always joke that we would love to have Michelle Obama on. <laughs> yeah. That's like an obvious one. Have you heard the, the Dope Queens episode where they have Michelle on? Like they joked for I, two whole seasons about having her on. And, and then, then she came on. Yes. I know that's the thing with her and Barack. Like Barack went on WTF. So it was like. Yeah, it's not, that's such a good episode. It's like picking these kind of smaller, not small. I mean, they're big in the podcast world, but you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's they're cool. big. Like you put it out there. You put it out there enough. I you put like out into the world. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. We, uh. I would, I'd like to talk to like Rachel Cusk. Yes. Um, but then again, I don't know. I mean, it would be more interesting to kind of talk to, we were try, we would like to get the ma, the mother of the rock climber from, um, what's, I don't know, it's the other documentary that was nominated. Oh, are you talking it, about, um, what is that called? Alex, um, his name's Alex Hanolt, that guy? Yeah, the guy who climbed uh, El Capitan without. Yeah, him. Eric's gonna what be is so mad at me because we watched it together and it's like his. I haven't even. He. Um, I haven't seen it. Oh. But it was like I want to interview his mom. That's amazing. <laughs> so yeah. I think that would be really interesting. That would uh, be I also really would like good. to interview um, Sally Mann, the photographer. Oh. Um, who yes. you know photographs has photographed her children. And I believe one of her children committed suicide. So I would, you know, uh, uh, like the, that's like mom rage thing where it's like, I would, if anybody wanted to come on and talk about that experience, I would mm-hmm. be so grateful just because I feel like we don't get to hear those stories very often. Like, what is it like to be a parent of a child who took their own life? Like what? And especially for someone like Sally Mann, who's an artist, I feel like she would have such a particular point of view that I would love to hear about. Right. Yeah. Silence, somber silence. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about her. 
photographs and how beautiful they are and how yeah. and the controversy around them and all of that. But I'm thinking about this one particular photograph that I have never been able to get out of my mind. I mean, it's just like they're just like by a stream or whatever. But yeah, they're so beautiful and really so interesting. big and interesting. And her in her memoir, she talks about like how she, they were they're extremely staged and her kids were often involved in the posing oh, and then wow. how people would then say they were sexual when that really wasn't part of the equation and how people can make things sexual and erotic when they're not. And Mm -hmm. that's not really on the subject, but that's on the The viewer. viewer. So I think all that stuff is so fascinating. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize they were so staged. I didn't, I can totally, the second part of your comment about the viewer sexualizing them, I totally get, but they seem so natural. I mean, that's- I know, they're just like these cameos, but they're not, yeah. (laughs) That is totally the art of it, wow. Yeah. Well, Eden, it was so wonderful to have you on this show. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It was really fun, thank you. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space. Hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole. And produced by me, Fu Lu. Our interns are Jennifer Overfield-Renya and Lily Wolfmeyer. Production assistance by Lily Wolfmeyer. We went into all sorts of technical difficulties and we blame the cats. <laughs> hey, Jessica. Yeah. Uh, since uh, you're testing, all right, could I meet you for a second so I could get Kate to record for me three, three yeah, things? Of okay. Yeah. You, so, Kate, you owe me the lead ins for Cat Bath, Wilbanks, and Water. I don't have yeah. all done in Wilbanks. You just have Bath? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because I'm a terrible person. Because I just ran out yeah. of fucking time. Uh, no, okay. no. We all Usually. In my defense, I wanted to know if it had any artistic merit. (laughs) Oh, my word. No, no. You need more sleep. You need more sleep, then you can come back on the show. Oh, my God. She so does need more sleep. If you were on a plane and you saw someone bring aboard a cat with a red jacket that's a service cat, do not pet. I am working. Oh no! That would be that would take an amount of self restraint that I don't think I've had since Halloween when I was like seven or eight years old. <laughs>